Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. Just a reminder before we get this podcast going, some of you may have seen in the newsletter last week or on our social media that we did bring on a new coach last week, um, Mr. Lee Hand. So Lee, someone we're very happy to have on board, but as a result, that means we have more online coaching spaces available now. Um, so we have spaces available, whether you'd like to work with myself, Patty or Lee, um, so you can sign up uh, in the website below in the description box. Get involved. And in this episode of the podcast, if you're like, you know what, I'm not going to get coaching with these guys, but I want them to tell me how I should set up my nutrition, I think this might be the episode to help you out. Am I right, Patty? Yes, for sure. So in today's episode, we are effectively going to talk about nutrition, right? And we've talked about it before. We've done episodes on this before. We have multiple articles on this before. We have a beginner's ebook on this as well. Like, there's loads of sources for this. However, we effectively need to do a quick recap of all this stuff because there's a few episodes that we want to record in this kind of series on nutrition. Um, and if you don't understand what we'll call the basics, um, the rest of the stuff can or will effectively not make sense. And also you can be very easily misled in terms of understanding the the magnitude of effect or rather the magnitude of impact certain dietary things we're going to talk about in future episodes will have on your overall results and whatever else, you know? And so we need to do a bit of a recap of everything today. And that's what today's episode is about. And effectively in today's episode, by the end of it, I want you to understand how to set up your diet from an initial start point. Now, I do want to make it clear that Whenever you're thinking about a diet from initially setting it up, you should think of it as a process that is going to get you to where you want to be. You shouldn't think of it as the be all and end all from the start. You know, you shouldn't think that, oh, once I plug these numbers into a calculator or whatever, that's that that's me set up for life. No, you should view this as a starting point for you to start tweaking things from and then to start you know, adjusting the diet over time to the diet that's going to suit you for your goals and your lifestyle and obviously something that you can manage over your lifetime, right? So we want to set up the diet. That's the main thing. But we also want to touch on a few different things and um, not only just the, how to set up from the numbers perspective, but then also how you set it up from like using the calculator or other methods, right? And then we want to finally touch on uh, meal timing because if you understand effectively how to set up the the numbers, right? And then you understand how to time those meals, that's a big lot of information that you have to go away and actually implement, right? Now, I also want to make it clear when we're going through this that we are going to take this from the perspective of tier three. Well, what we call tier three, right? Which is a very calories and macros perspective, right? But I don't want you to get the impression that that's the only way to diet to get results or the only way to effectively set up your diet, right? There are multiple other ways. Like we have three tiers and the first one is habit-based change, right? And the second one is portion control. Now, both of those kind of tied together because you can use habit-based change to get to a better portion controlled diet, right? And then calories and macro counting is just 
bringing that portion control diet to a more accurate level, right? And that's not needed for everyone. However, if you understand tier three, you automatically understand tier one and tier two, right? So that's why we're starting on this, right? And secondly, to that, it can kind of be a bit, or it would be very esoteric if I just talked about habit-based change, right? Because I'd be talking about all these random habits, which may or may not apply to you. Because this is the issue with discussing habit-based change. You need an individual. You need an actual person to discuss their habits. It's very individualized. It's very specific to that individual. And while, yes, there are certainly habits that are consistently wrong in, I shouldn't say wrong, consistently out of line with what needs to be done to get results in you know, the general population. But that doesn't mean that it's the habits that you need to work on. So effectively, if I just talked about habit-based change, I would not be serving you well in this whole discussion. Same portion control. Again, if you understand the, the calories and macros stuff, you automatically understand portion control, right? So it makes sense to discuss this from the calories and macro perspective right? Because then you automatically understand the other stuff, right? However, if you do want to dig in a little bit deeper and really start to understand how to set up your diet um, for where you are currently and where you potentially want to go long-term, because we do generally suggest people get to tier two, even after they've been on tier three, if that makes sense. Um, because tier two is very very intuitive, right? And we'll get to that in future episodes. Um, but as I said, if you understand today's episode and you understand setting up these numbers, then you automatically understand the other stuff. Now, that doesn't mean that you automatically implement uh, the other stuff. That's, that's the hard bit. That's the hard bit about nutrition, full stop, um, is the actual implementation. But at least if you have that barrier removed of understanding, you have a far better chance of actually setting this stuff up, right? So does that make sense, Gary? Yes, sir. Right. So to get this started, as I said, uh, by the end of this episode, I want you to have a fuller understanding of actually looking at setting up your diet, right? And to set up a diet, the first thing we need to cover is effectively your goal, right? And what I mean by that is, like, what are you actually trying to achieve long term? Because when we set up diets, we always keep effectively three things in mind, right? And that is your body composition, your health, and your performance, right? And um, there's no order to them in terms of which is more important. Like we probably would say health is the most important, but for you as an individual right now, one of the other things may be more important to you, um, and that's, that's perfectly fine, right? As long as we respect the other things, okay? Like obviously, it, I would say it's not fine if you're like, oh, it's all about body composition, and as a result, your health is in a terrible place and your performance is in a terrible place. And that might be okay transiently. You know, maybe you have a, a competition or something that you're like, this really needs to be pushed. But ultimately, that shouldn't be your overall focus because it's not a very sustainable focus, you know? And um, so we need to keep your goal in mind. Like, what are we actually trying to achieve with the diet? And you need to be very, very specific with this. Yes, you can use something like, oh, I want to lose five pounds, 10 pounds, whatever else, but that's, that's not a long-term focus, right? Your long-term focus has to be, okay, I want to lose five pounds and I want to become fitter, stronger, healthier over the long-term, and I also want to maintain that weight loss, right? And again, that's just purely from like a, a weight loss perspective. You need to be very specific in what you're trying to achieve, you know? You need to know 
like, why are you trying to lose five pounds? Like, is that actually something that you need to do? Is that something that's actually going to make you happier? Is that something that's going to enhance your life? Like, like what, what is the process? Like, why are we doing this? Right? Because once you understand the why, then we can start setting up the, the how, right? And, um, but it all comes back to that. And that obviously is a, an episode all in and of itself and um, goal setting. We have covered it before, but you need to do that before you even think of setting up these numbers because without a goal, there's like, there's no reason to this, you know, like it, it doesn't make sense. Right. So you need to have that goal. You need to have that clearly defined. You need to have the end in mind. Right. And again, that end could be in five, eight, 10, 15 weeks. You know, maybe you are diving down for a, a holiday or something. Um, but also on top of that, you need to look at the longer term, like what is the ultimate goal in five, 10, 15 years? Like how does what you are setting up right now facilitate your, your long-term performance, health and body composition? You know, because I, I think most people want to be in a good position for the majority of their life, you know, in terms of like their health, body composition, performance, right? Like, yeah, people might do, you know, crash diets or something because they're like, Oh, I have a wedding coming up and I want to look good in my dress, my suit, whatever. Um, but they know themselves that that's not maintainable. That's not a sustainable approach. They're doing it for a very specific reason. Right. However, like even if you ask those people, they would much prefer to be able to lose those five pounds, those 10 pounds or whatever, and then maintain that, you know, almost effortlessly. Right. So Ideally, we want to set up a process that allows you to achieve your goals and then sustain those goals long term. And again, that's what we'll get into in kind of further episodes. Right. So when we are thinking about the diet, the first thing we, we come across, if you're listening to information in the, the health and fitness world, is there does seem to be this dichotomy between people have two approaches where people talk about diet quality and then people talk about diet quantity right? And they effectively always end up talking past each other, right? <clears throat> like you have the people that say, you should focus purely on your food choices, you make better food choices, and naturally, you know, calories and macronutrients, etc, all fall in line, right? <coughs> Excuse me. And then you have the other people, again, focusing on the, the diet quantity, and they're like, yeah, focus on your calories and macronutrients. And then naturally, you make better food choices, because, you know, you have to fit those calories and macronutrients and these hyper palatable, high calorie foods just don't fit into this, you know? So they do effectively target the same thing, but they talk past each other because they're coming at it from two approaches, right? And ultimately that doesn't really serve the, the general population because ultimately we should be focusing on both, right? And they naturally complement each other, right? Because you can eat the highest quality diet. You can go all organic. You can go ethically killed uh, meat, free range, oh, whatever, right? You can go all deep, 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 deep dive on the quality of your food, whatever that means for you, right? But if you're over consuming calories, you're not going to achieve your health, body composition, performance goals, right? And the same is true on the other side. If all you focus on is the, the quality or sorry, the, the quantity of your diet, like all you do is hit your, your calories and macros, like, yeah, you will get results, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you will get uh, long-term health or it will be easy to sustain that diet. Because again, this is often overlooked. If you do focus on like filling your calories and macros with these hyperpalatable foods, you know, hunger comes up, 
you know you you also potentially miss out on you know key micronutrients you know so it, it isn't an either or the two things they, they they fit together it's like a jigsaw of two pieces that just fit together like yeah you can get half the image with half the jigsaw piece but it's not the full picture you know they naturally complement each other and understanding both of these things really allows you to make long-term sustainable progress right so we need to keep that in mind does that all make sense gary while i sip on this coffee and you say some words yeah absolutely and i mean like that that kind of like false dichotomy between like diet quantity and diet quality is is something that you know, became it, like it's it swung to different extremes in the fitness industry. Like obviously most people will be familiar with, you know, people who just kind of reduce nutrition to nothing but clean eating, you know, and then you, you get people thinking, all right, what foods are clean, what foods aren't clean. And all of that can push you in a direction that leads to results because yeah, obviously when you consume foods that are less palatable, that are, you know, higher in fiber, higher in protein, um, lower in overall fat content, etc. When you start to do that and you set up a diet with those rules, you improve satiety and it leads to as a result, um, hunger management because there's not as much palatability and your, your satiety is managed. So the end outcome ends be, or the end outcome is actually the change in calories that was desired. You know, but and then on the other side of the spectrum, you've got people who would, you know, promote a more if it fits your macros type of approach and just say like, what look, once you hit your calories and macros, it doesn't really matter what you eat. And like that person is controlling the endpoint and not using the kind of the intermediate factors, which are the foods that you're eating to get to the end point. So they're both doing the exact same thing through controlling calories um, in different ways and with different trade-offs because obviously the trade-off there's a trade-off if you're just kind of clean eating of not being able to enjoy um your favorite foods for example or not actually knowing how many calories you're eating or not knowing how you're managing your nutrition like for example some people hit a plateau with their um clean eating type of approaches and they're like okay what do i do now you know do i just cut out my broccoli, like, because they haven't been controlling for the endpoints. Um, but then on the other side of things, like the, if it's your macros type of people, if you get to a point where, yeah, you've hit a plateau, but you're actually starving already because you're not eating any fiber, your protein um, is low, uh, you know, all the foods you're eating are really dense in calories, then again, you, you've, you've hit a limiting factor of that approach. So um, as always, there's some, there's, there's, there's lessons we can take from both and creating a false dichotomy is just never or rarely useful. 100% carry. You've hit the nail on the head. Um, but yeah, so as I said, these things, they, they dovetail nicely, right? So it's not an either or argument. You should do both, right? You should eat high quality foods where possible. Again, within your budget, within your lifestyle, within your ethics, morals, whatever, you know? And then you should also have an eye to the, the quantity of those foods that you are eating, right? Just because, again, you only eat broccoli or whatever, um, if you overconsume calories, that broccoli will still make you fat, right? Um, so you need to keep that in mind when you are looking at all this stuff, right? Which brings us to the first point, which is calories, right? And the thing you need to understand about calories is that it is a, effectively, it's a proxy measure, but you don't really need to go in deep into that and um, we have articles on that on site and um, but what you do need to know is that calories or rather the calories in versus the calories out that is what's dictating your body composition not entirely 
but it is what's dictating your, your weight regulation, right? And what I mean by that is the calories you consume, right? So that's the actual diet that you consume, right? So say you consume 3000 calories per day, right? If you calories output, you know, the output of calories that you do per day. So this would include moving around your non-exercise activity thermogenesis. It also would include your activity. So the activity thermogenesis. Uh, so like the actual stuff that you're the exercise activity thermogenesis and um, but it also includes all of these other things that go along with food like the, the thermic effect of feeding you know where you're actually you know eating food and the more food you eat the more your body has to process and burn that food and obviously certain foods have a higher thermic effect of feeding in terms of they take a little bit more energy to break down and to assimilate to digest and assimilate all that kind of stuff right you actually don't need to know all the nitty-gritty of that right? What you do need to know is that the calories that you eat day to day versus the calories that you expend day to day, that is what's dictating how your weight moves, right? Not entirely because there is some like water regulation within that. There's also some like stool volume within that. But again, that kind of goes into uh, the, the calories you eat day to day. But to a large extent, that is what's dictating your, your weight, right? And this, this can be really confusing for people because it's very easy to understand the calories inside of things, right? Because you can just download an app. You can just track the food that you eat, you know, and even if you're roughly tracking, like you're not weighing and measuring every single last gram of food, you can still get a very rough approximation of the calories that you eat, right? However, tracking and managing the calories out, that can be a lot harder for people to do Firstly, from a knowledge perspective, because certain things go into it that you may not know about. For example, like for years, people just were not aware of the magnitude of effect of meat. So the non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And that's all stuff like fidgeting. That's like stuff like just walking around. That's stuff like even like involuntary stuff. Like I'm moving my hands. Or, well, it's voluntary, I suppose. But, you know, it, it's subconscious. And um, you're just moving your hands around, you know, when you talk, you know, all that kind of stuff, even thinking right? If you think loads, it technically does burn more calories, right? But it's very hard to track and measure that stuff, right? Like very hard to quantify it, right? And for a large, a, a long time, people just didn't quantify it, you know? And this led people to really question that SECO model, the calories in, calories out model, you know? Because they just didn't know, like they were like, well, I'm tracking my food, I'm eating 2000 calories, and I'm doing this amount of work in the gym. I'm burning 500 calories. I'm doing my resistance training. I'm doing whatever. And my weight's not moving, right? However, what had happened is, you know, if you do start messing around with the, the calories in aspect, that does have metabolic consequences in terms of your metabolism will respond to that calorie level, right? And that's, first of all, from a thermic effect of feeding point of view, if you eat less calories, there's a lower thermic effect of feeding because you know you have to burn, you have to do less work to digest that because you're digesting less, right? So that kind of goes down. That's not a huge uh, effect. Like, yeah, it does have a, an effect, but it's not something that I'd be like, that's the, the the one thing that we've messed up on, you know. But this whole neat aspect, the the non-exercise stuff, that is something that really is responsive. So if you start dieting down, all of a sudden, you know, these extra movements, they just kind of stop. You just sit there, you know. 
all those extra steps where you used to take the stairs or you used to park further away and you know walk to where you're going all of a sudden you're taking the car to the door you know and all this kind of stuff goes down and it's very or rather it seems very inconsequential but it has the effect of lowering the amount of calories out right and this can lead so many people to having a hard time dieting overall right and this is also compounded or yeah compounded by the fact that if you are dieting and you're somewhat successful you now weigh less right so even if you do the exact same amount of activity that you were doing because you weigh less you are burning less calories doing that right like again i always use the example if you were to i just handed you like a five kilo or a 10 kilo weight and asked you to carry that around all the time right like you would automatically go okay well that's obviously i have to expend more energy to carry that around i have to hold it i have to move around with it blah 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 right it's very intuitive that if you're holding a five kilo or a 10 kilo weight you understand that that's going to burn more calories you have to expend more energy right but if you had five kilos of extra weight just in terms of like fat mass, you know, and then we just dropped that off, you lost that five kilos, all of a sudden you're not carrying that five kilo weight around anymore, you know? So your everyday tasks are technically easier. You're burning less calories doing them every day, you know? So that does confound things, right? Which again, all of this stuff goes into leading people to having a hard time getting their head around this whole calories in, calories out argument or theory or whatever you want to call it hypothesis and um, and ultimately once you actually understand what's going into this what like the the, the niche the the thermic effect of feeding you know the weight regulation stuff the, the the weight loss stuff all that kind of stuff you you actually understand that okay this 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 equation is really dictating everything right and while you might not have complete control over every single aspect of it you, you do te- technically have complete control over the calories in aspect of it but you don't have complete control over how your body responds to that right which is the calories out aspect of it right and this can lead people so so far astray that they never actually get results right so we need to understand that it is an it is a an equation calories in calories out we need to control as best we can for both sides of that equation right? And that depends on what your actual goal is, but we do need to do that from the start, right? So I want you to keep that in mind when we're talking about setting a calorie level, right? Depending on the goal, we have to also take into account the calories out aspect, right? And this is, or this always has to be done because your metabolism is not a fixed thing, right? It is an adaptive, right? So if you eat more calories, you will probably output more in this calories out aspect. You might move around a little, fidget a bit more. We also have a higher thermic effect of feeding, right? But also if you eat less, you might start, you know, doing less. And then also again, your thermic effect of feeding is going down, right? And then also potentially, especially as you get further and further into a diet, your performance in the gym goes down. So what you were, you know, standardizing for calories, you know, uh, or you were standardizing for, you know, your performance overall. Now, all of a sudden you're not able to do that and you're burning less calories overall. So there's loads of stuff that goes into the calories out aspect that really makes it hard for people to stay on track with their goals because they just don't know what they should be looking at. Right? So we have to keep that in mind when we are discussing nutrition that automatically from the off, this goes beyond nutrition. This goes into your lifestyle. This goes into your training. This goes into, again, recovery, sleep, all that stuff. It all plays in.
right? So there is no, oh, I'm only going to focus on nutrition. And this is something that's really unfortunate about this whole health and fitness stuff. It, it isn't like a, a pick and choose menu. You know, you can't just go, oh, I want that, that, and that. You know, you have to do, you have to eat everything on it. It's just straight through, you know, um, which is very hard for people to do because you, you're reading this stuff and you're like, I don't know what that is. How am I supposed to control for that? I have no idea what that is, <laughs> you know? So very hard. You need to educate yourself, but you also need to have a protocol that is easier for you to actually put into practice you know so it shouldn't be overly complicated but you do need to have an idea of the determinants that go into that right so when we're looking at the diet what i always do is i set calories but i set that with the eye to my output right and that's both from a perspective of how often we are training and what your day-to-day activity looks like and again, we can use a proxy measure for NEAT. It's not perfect, but it does give us some indication. And what we generally use is steps. So you have like a, a fitness tracking watch or your phone, or maybe if you go old school, a, a pedometer, or maybe if you're just an absolute, I don't know, crazy lad, and you just want to count every single step that you take in a day. Um, I don't know, do whatever the fuck you want. Um, you know, we like to standardize that. Now, the general recommendations are 10,000 steps per day, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what you need to do, right? You could standardize that to 5,000 steps. You could standardize that to 7,000. You could standardize that to 20,000. It's irrelevant to a large degree, as long as we have an idea of where it is at and how that then influences our, our calorie balance, this equation overall. Now, there are obviously pros and cons to having a, a low, uh, you know, output and a high output, but ultimately we just need to know where it is. You know, if you have like a, a low output, you're probably going to have to diet on fewer calories because you're just not expending more calories throughout the day. If you have a higher output though, you know, recovery can become an issue. So if you're trying to push your training, you're trying to increase your performance, you know, that might be a detriment, especially as you start climbing past that kind of 15 K mark, you know, that could potentially be a detriment to your actual progress in the gym and that kind of stuff. Right. But we need to understand this. Okay. So does that all make sense, Gary? Let me sip on this again. Yeah, absolutely. Like the only thing I'd kind of reinforce there is that like people love to try and showcase except seeming or apparent exceptions to the rule here. Like, you know, people will be like, Yeah, yeah, that's fine. I get it. Calories in, calories out. But I've got a friend and he or she eats whatever they want and they're always skinny. And then I have another friend and he or she eats so well. They eat so well and they're still fat and can't lose weight, you know? And then they're like, oh, so yeah, the, the, the rule, no, it just, it just doesn't work. Whereas like what you have to realize is that if we, if we do take, for example, the, the niche, right? That's one aspect of this. If you've got one person who's taking three to 5,000 steps per day and another person who's got an active job, they work in maybe, I don't know, a shopping center or a shop or something. They're on their feet all day um, in a restaurant. They're a waiter. They could be clocking up 10, 15, 20. I remember I had a waiter one time and he was clocking 25,000 steps a shift. You know, that, like, that's a lot. Like that accounts for a massive proportion of one's calorie calorie output um, and then similarly what you have to realize is that when it comes to adapting to overfeeding or underfeeding like if you think of like on the x-axis you've got how much i adapt to underfeeding like so that's how much your metabolism or energy output drops in response to being in a deficit and then on the y-axis you've got 
um, how much your metabolism or output increases in response to overfeeding. Okay, you're going to have people that are distributed all over that graph. So if you think of one quarter being the people who they right they they adapt by reducing their energy expenditure loads when they're underfeeding, um, and then they they increase their energy expenditure loads when they're overfeeding. And you've got each of those people with each of those respective combinations. You can see how we can kind of begin to explain away a lot of these, these things that people seem to spot in the general population. Like for example, for me, like when I, when I diet, I seem to like slow down a lot. Like I really do feel it. Wedding and stuff. Yeah, I just don't even sweat or anything. Like when I'm in a deficit, it like I, I really do feel the difference hugely. So I adapt a lot to underfeeding, but at the same time, I also adapt a lot to to overfeeding. Um, and that for me is a bit of a seem, seeming an anomaly because you ought, you ought, you would probably think that right the person who you know adapts loads to underfeeding, um, they probably don't adapt that much to underfeeding or, or to to overfeeding rather. Um, and, but that's, that, that point is just to illustrate that there's people all over this spectrum. Like when I'm overfeeding then, like my current calories are like 4,000, but I'm soaking in bed every night with sweat. When I'm in class, I'm probably a really annoying person to sit to sit next to because I'm always jerking and tapping my feet and move my hands and stuff like that. And I'm just generally really active and training a lot. So there could be a huge difference between the calories I diet on and the calories that I'm gaining weight on. Um, and that's just important to realize that, that those things do exist. So you've got your adaptive components of your metabolism and you've got that non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which includes just kind of walking around and non-exercise activities, which actually varies hugely when people don't standardize it. And even when people do track it, you know, I saw one client recently who was dieting and he, he went from like 12,000 to 8,000 to 6,000 in three consecutive weeks, just because he was kind of pinning in his numbers and not thinking too much about it. Whereas that could basically wipe away most of his deficit if it was a conservative deficit. So you do actually have to keep these things in mind. Yeah, hundred percent. And also this does explain so much of, of what people see in the the day-to-day public, but also then the, the the social media public, if you want to call it that. And what I mean by that is, like, you, you see these people, then they're like, oh, well, I died on, like, 2,500 calories, and they're a female of 60 kilos. And you're like, Jesus, man, like, I plugged this into a calculator? This doesn't make sense, man. She should be on, like, 1,600, you know? And effectively, they use that as a, a selling point, like, oh, I get to yeah. diet on, like, all these huge calories. And that can lead people to have this misconception of, like, broken metabolisms and like all this kind of bullshit right but when you actually look at it you go a bit deeper you're like oh actually you're a personal trainer and you're on the gym floor you do some fitness classes as well and you know your output is just phenomenal and you know you're you're getting thirty thousand steps every single day without even trying you know like i remember when i used to work in a gym like and i used to cycle there as well like my maintenance was five thousand calories yeah it's insane like it was like just to maintain was 5,000 calories, but it's because I was so active. Right. And so like you, I, I know a lot of people use that as a selling point. They're like, Oh, I can get you to diet on high calories. But the reason they're able to do that is purely from an output perspective. Now that could also be, you know, they're doing extra cardio and doing whatever else. It all goes into this output stuff. And, but it is very deceptive when you're looking at that from an individual who potentially doesn't understand this calories in calories out equation. Right. So don't be, you know, don't get lied to. Don't fall into the trap of listening to people like, oh, I can get you to diet on 
X amount of extra calories or they look at your diet and go, oh, that's stupid. Because it's simply not feasible if you have an office job that you have to commute to, that you can't like, you know, cycle to, walk to, do whatever to. And, you know, it's very hard for you to get more than 4,000 steps per day. Because I've had clients like that where it's like, like my, do- my job is just very sedentary and I have to commute. So they've got a two hour commute every day. It's not like they can just like, oh, I'm going to fill in an hour of my day with a nice little walk that would be nice and relaxing. It's like, no, you live in Ireland. It's probably pissing rain when you get home. You also have to factor in trying to get to the gym. You know, you have all these other things that you need to do. We're just going to standardize this 4,000 calories. And that means that you're going to have to diet on lower calories. You know, it's just a, a, a matter of fact, right? Especially if you are a smaller female uh, or male, but generally in females, you'll see this. Um, if you weigh like 50 kilos, you know, it's very hard to put a lot of output in and get a lot of calorie return for that investment, if that makes sense. Because, you know, as I said earlier on, if I'm carrying around, like I weigh nearly hundred kilos, if like I weigh 50 kilos more than you, that's like every single step I take, I'm carrying around that 50 kg dumbbell extra to that 50 kilo person, you know? So it's, it's, I'm obviously naturally just burning more just by virtue of the fact that I weigh more. Right. And, um, and this also then explains why you see people go like, oh, the middle age spread, you know, and realistically what happens is a lot of people, they're in college and obviously it happens to some people in college, but uh, they're very active. They're generally, they have to walk everywhere. They don't have a lot of money, you know, so they have to walk everywhere or they're getting the bus and then, you know, they walk to what they want to do and they're just generally active. Maybe they engage in sports and whatever, but then they get a job, they get a car, they get a house, you know, and they get, or maybe not in Ireland, you don't get a house, but you know, um, <laughs> you, you, you get all of this stuff and all of a sudden the effect is it reduces the amount of like non-exercise activity you do you know you all of a sudden aren't doing your 10,000 steps per day you know I've seen people that literally only get a thousand steps per day you know and they struggle at that you know so that's obviously going to have uh, a negative impact on your calorie expenditure day to day right so if you don't if you don't have that understanding you all of a sudden start thinking like oh as soon as i hit like 25 like the weight just started piling on me you know but when we look at your actual lifestyle between you know what happened in those those time frames it's like oh well you went from being a very active individual always walking everywhere to being a very sedentary individual never walking anywhere and even though you're still engaging in your you know your four to five gym sessions per week like the rest of your day the other 23 hours of the day are very very sedentary right so hopefully that gets people to at least start understanding this this calories stuff right now how do you set your calories this is good this is the issue this is the hard bit actually setting it up right so there's two methods to this and <clears throat> effectively i just use both right um the first thing you can do is just plug all your data into a calculator in fact we have a free calculator on site that you can download right so you can, you, you can use that. We also have the calculator for if you are in the, the group coaching, it's in there, right? And um, if you have our beginner ebook, again, it's a link there, you know? So you have access to a, a, a free calculator that will, you plug in your data and it will give you a number, right? Now, from that, you can then start extrapolating where you need to go. And the way you do this is hit that number, and then see how your weight changes. And then from that data, you can go, okay, if your weight starts going up, 
then you know you were eating more calories than you were burning day to day, right? If your weight starts going down, you know that you're eating less calories than you need or you're burning day to day, right? So if you want to stay at the same weight, you can adjust your calories up or down accordingly, right? So that's the first method, right? I like to do that um, to get an idea of where calories should be. However, the second method, although it is less or seemingly less scientific because you're not using this, you know, random calculation um, that you hope some scientists got right, um, is just to track your intake for three, seven, 14, whatever, a length of time, right? And then from that intake, you, again, look at how your weight has changed. Say you were just averaging 3,000 calories and you look at your weight and it stayed the exact same. Then you know that 3,000 calories is roughly around your maintenance calories, the, the calories you need to maintain your weight, right? So you can use both. You can use a calculator and get an idea of where you should be at. And then you can use these kind of average and adjust method. You know, if you don't want to use a calculator, just start tracking your food for whatever, three to seven days, see how your weight has changed. If it hasn't changed much, then we're roughly in around maintenance. And you just keep adjusting that intake over time until we're at a calorie level that allows you to achieve the results that you want to achieve, right? And that could mean weight loss. That could mean muscle gain, weight gain, whatever. We will be coming to those in future episodes, right? Like actually manipulating your body composition. Right now, we just want to know how to set up things, right? So that's how you set up calories. Very, very simple. Either use a calculator or track your food, track your intake, and both of those methods, then you just see how your weight has changed over time and then adjust up or down accordingly. Does that make sense, Gary? Absolutely. The only thing I want to clarify is that people... People love calculators and calculations and everything. And they hate, like anytime I bring it up to, to people about, oh, actually just, just, just measure, measure your calories or track your calories for a couple of weeks and see where your body weight goes. They're like, oh, that's boring. I like, just give you the perfect calculation. But like, like that's actually a far less scientific way, even though like when, when people have calculators and numbers and, you know, activity factors, it seems like it's really scientific, but it's actually not because you're still just taking an assumption based on like, the whole population and saying, right, this probably works within a margin of error. That's fairly sound for most people, you know, like, and, that, and that's what you're kind of taking into account there. Whereas as we've just discussed, there are many variables that can change this um, for individuals. And even sometimes using those activity factors, people are like, hmm, Hmm, am I, am I actually engaging in heavy and tech, intense exercise? Cause like a lot of weight trainees do that. Like people who just do weight training, they're like, oh yeah, I engage in, you know, heavy, intense exercise uh, six to seven times per week. Whereas like the energy expenditure for what they're doing versus, I don't know, someone who's like a runner or a cyclist or something like that are like totally different. Um, so you're actually better off and, and it's definitely a more scientific approach to just track your intake for a while, see what you're averaging and then see where your body weight goes. Like, that's all I ever do. Like, that's how I make decisions. I look back over where my weight has been over a number of weeks and then I change my calories accordingly. Because as we've said, there are adaptive processes that change it. So my calories have changed by a good few hundred calories over the last kind of two months or so. And that's not based on the calculator changing. It's based purely on the observed pattern in my body weight. So although it doesn't seem as sexy at first glance, it's a far better approach. 100% Gary, you're dead right. Of course. <laughs> right. So 
once we get a handle on calories, again, like we're going to come back to this in future episodes. Yeah. So you don't need to know everything right now. Right. But once we get a handle on calories and again, I'm not saying we need to track everything forever, or this is the best approach for everyone. However, everyone needs to get a handle on their calories. And this is one method of doing it. Right. The next thing we need to get a handle on, especially if performance, health and body composition are our goals. Right. And I think they're the goals of pretty much everyone. Right. So, the next thing we need to get a handle on is our protein intake. Now, there's a lot, there's, there's a huge range available to us in terms of protein intake. And this is something that confuses a lot of people and they just completely throw reason out the window. And it's purely because you're not looking at the population being studied or you're not looking at the population that you fall into, right? Because naturally enough, the diet is going to be both population and individual specific, right? So you may need more than the average population. You may need less than the average population. The OAP people that they studied for this particular number that you're reading is not the population that you are when you engage in resistance training four to six times per week, you know? So you, you will read a lot of variability or you will read a lot of variance and the majority of it can just be explained away by looking at the correct population. However, even if we look at the correct population, there is still going to be a range of intakes that are acceptable or rather yeah, acceptable for that population because we're all individuals. We all handle diets differently. We all have different enzymes in our body, like obviously relatively similar, but there's different things going on. We all have different you know, polymorphisms in our genetics. We all have different you know, muscle mass levels. We all weigh different. We all, like, we're, we're very different, even though we are very, very similar right? So this naturally leads us to having a range of intake that is acceptable for our goals, right? And also, this is something that changes over time, depending on what your goals are, right? Because the, the intake of protein for muscle gain, say, may be different for, from the intake of someone who is trying to diet down to a very lean level, right? So there's going to be this range of intakes that allows people to stay on track with what they actually want to achieve, right? And it's, it's very hard for an individual to read all the research and go, oh, this is the exact number or this is the exact number, especially considering that the, the majority of researchers disagree with each other and they also then use different methods to track how the diet is actually, or how the protein intake is actually, you know, affecting the individual, right? Now, with all that out of the way, right? With all the, the caveat of, yeah, maybe this, maybe that, it doesn't really matter. We have this kind of range of intake that there's a certain level that just prevents deficiency right? Because you can have a protein deficiency. Well, you can have a protein deficiency. You can have a, an amino acid deficiency, you know, because there are essential amino acids that your body can't make, right? So you can have a deficiency in those. So there's obviously an intake, again, specific to the individual that prevents that, right? And then there's also obviously an intake that you can eat more protein, but it's not really doing anything. You know, it's just being metabolized into other things like glucose in your body, right? It's not actually contributing to the, the nitrogen pool or the, the protein pool, 
right? So, you know, going above that probably doesn't have benefits. And there is probably a level where negatives start coming about. That's the same with anything. And that could be just purely from a, uh, a, a caloric perspective. You know, if you eat more protein than you need, and it also bumps you over your calories, well, you know, you can still get fat eating protein, right? Um, so we need to keep that in mind. So with that in mind, Gary, where do you like protein intake to be for, we'll say, general population? Like, if I was like, right, gun to your head right now, what number would you give relative to their weight? And you only have one number, no range. Yeah, no range. Two grams. Two grams for me is is the solid sweet spot that encompasses the vast majority of people. Now wait, is that it's per pound or per kilo? Per kilo, kilo, jeepers, kilo, fucking hell. Two grams per kilogram of your body weight because that's that's below the kind of lower threshold that's given of like 1.6. Like 1.6 is the number that's given to most people who are in positive energy balance. Um, so you're, you know, you're eating above maintenance or, or even at maintenance, to be honest. But yeah, you're above maintenance. You've got enough energy to keep everything going. And it also encompasses people who are on kind of more plant-based diets. Because even if you are in a surplus um, and you're, you're aiming for that 1.6 gram, like the lower end, Ugh, like if I'm, if you're on a plant-based diet, like I'd rather see you just have more than you need, have, have more than you need just because it's more difficult for you to get all of the amino acids that are going to be conducive of the best response in terms of protein synthesis, if that is your goal. So if you are like, it, it might make as much of a difference as some people might think at first glance, but it probably does make a difference if you're trying to maximize your muscle mass and your returns from your investments in the gym. So if you're on a plant-based diet, like two grams encompasses you. Um, and you know, if you are dieting, then yeah, as I said, it's, it's high enough above the, the lower end to, to give you a little bit extra for insurance. Um, so that'd be my, like my one number. Yeah. hundred percent. Like I, I, if, if you were to give me a one number, I'd probably say 2.2, but that's just me being sure. pedantic. And, uh, but if you are somewhere within the range, like I, I don't like saying like the, the very bare minimum range. Cause I am aware that obviously populations that listen to this are also resistance training, generally probably doing some cardio, probably have a generally active life. So that minimum range probably, you know, doesn't apply to them at least throughout the majority of their their life so i always say like 1.8 is the the minimum that, that recommendation that i would give um however three maybe up to 3.3 would be the, the top end of the range that i would ever like to see someone at now there are potential benefits to that higher intake like again even just from a satiety perspective however the vast majority are probably going to do well in the range of two to 2.5 grams. Like if you were to be like, what is the smallest range that you can give that you would be very confident that you would hit the right range for the majority of people? I would say two to 2.5 grams, especially considering that some of those individuals are going to be dieting. Some of those individuals are going to be, you know, gaining. Uh, so if you were to go, what is the range? I would say two to 2.5, you know? And generally as a starting point, I either go, again, depending on the individual, I generally start at either two or 2.2, or again, somewhere within that range, depending on where their calories are at, how their activity is. And from that point, we can then start the tweaking process, you know? 
if we notice that, you know, okay, they just like to eat more protein, then we can go up, we can go up to that 2.5, or <clears throat> if they are being a little bit more aggressive with their dieting practices, maybe again, we can go up to that 2.5. So there are instances where we would go up to that. And then there are instances where we would, you know, drop down to either that two level or potentially below that. Although I don't really generally find that that's a, a good approach for the majority of people, you know? Yes, sir. Like, I mean, if you're, at, if you're at asking what I do myself, like I probably end up around that 2.2 to 2.5 range most of the time, just because it kind of aligns with my food preferences. And to be honest, when you do get, even though he said like, oh yeah, you can get away with lower protein intake when you're on more calories, but because you, you accumulate so much protein from indirect sources when you are on higher calories, it actually kind of makes sense sometimes to have a higher protein intake anyway. Like personally, like if I'm on 4,000 calories a day, if I was to not even try and get protein in through any direct protein sources, I'd still probably like scrape close to, you know, 80 or, or more grams, you know, even probably even more, especially when you're eating lots of things like porridge, nut butters, um, you know, you might be having like milk in your porridge. Like obviously it is a direct protein source, but it's not like, oh yeah, I'm adding whey, I'm adding meat, I'm adding eggs. Um, so you can definitely accumulate a lot through, through indirect sources. So 2.2 um, is a fairly sound range that I end up at most of the time. So, so yeah, I think they're, that the, they're solid starting points, 2 to 2.5. Yeah, this also then brings up a, another issue, which is the, the tracking issue. And this, this applies to all of the macronutrients, but it particularly applies to protein and fiber, right? And that is this concept, and it's, it's permeated by lots of people in the fitness industry. And if you actually just listen to their message, their message is so dichotomous to what they actually say the majority of the time that you actually just wonder if they've been hitting the head repeatedly or something, right? And Probably. this is people not tracking stuff like crossovers, right? Crossover calories crossover macronutrients where they will eat like a carb source, but they'll only treat that as a carb source and not track the, the protein in that, you know, or, you know, the fats in that, you know, uh, the trace, trace carb or the trace fats and proteins, right? So they might eat something like rice and only treat it as a carbohydrate source and not take into account that that also has protein in it. Right. And they do stuff like that. And they do it with fiber as well. And they say like, oh, you don't need to track your veg, right? You don't need to track your, your overall veg intake. And that's automatically getting rid of all the calories from that, all the protein from that, all the carbohydrates, and potentially even the fats from that as well. And of course, obviously the, the fiber from that as well, right? And they're like, don't track your veg. And then they turn around in the next sentence almost and say, if you are not or what gets tracked gets measured, right? Or if you're not tracking, you're guessing. And those two things are fundamentally dichotomous, right? Like you cannot have that belief with diet and then have that belief with tracking or whatever, you know? They are fundamentally dichotomous, you know? So if you ever see that permeated, because you see it all the time, like so much that it's actually like, you almost wonder how people came to that approach and how they don't you know implode with this like uh dichotomous thought process in their head you know and yeah if you ever see that just call it out and be like here what do you mean you know because most people i think just haven't thought that through you know where they're like okay well i say you have to track everything your weight your whatever and then 
in the next sentence I say, don't track your veg or don't track your protein, carbohydrate, fat crossovers. You know, it doesn't make sense, right? So keep that in mind when you are tracking that all of the diet, it's the totality of the diet that we need to look at. And that means that everything matters within the diet, you know? And, and while there are valid approaches where you're like, okay, well, I don't need to track this because I've standardized it, you know, that often gets lost in the, the overall message, the overall approach. And quite often, it's very hard to standardize something without ever tracking it, you know? And like you can think, oh, I'm eating 200 grams of this, but how do you know? Because you've never tracked what 200 grams of that looks like you know and so and also you probably eat different foods every day like the majority of people on earth you know and so keep that in mind when you are discussing all of this stuff right now that brings us to the thing that i set next but you could make an argument that the thing you set next is the opposite and but i like to set fats next right and i I should just mention on the protein touched on it there that protein intake is uh, again a proxy measure for amino acid intake right? And it is essentially a proxy measure for essential amino acid intake, right? Because you are effectively trying to eat a certain amount of protein so that you get all the amino acids that you need, but also especially focusing on all the essential amino acids that you need. And they are essential because your body can't make them, right? So protein intake, like you could, if you were so inclined and you knew the exact amino acid requirements of your body, you could eat less protein and really focus on getting the perfect amino acid spectrum for your needs. However, I don't know how to do that. I understand biochemistry to whatever level I understand biochemistry, and I wouldn't even know how to begin that process of figuring out the exact amino acid requirements for me, right? And so it's physically impossible to do. Well, probably is possible but it's very impossible to do uh, especially for an average population an average person so you have to uh, ensure that you are eating enough protein which is a proxy measure to then ensure that you are getting enough essential amino acids and amino acids in general right so i just want to touch on that before we go on to the next thing which is setting the fat intake right and the reason i always set fat intake next is because there are also essential fatty acids right Um, and again setting your fat intake there is a lot of information and a lot of poor information and a lot of not exactly applicable information when you go out looking to figure out the number for what you should be eating right and this kind of leaves us to use a bit of anecdote within this and use a bit of just common sense within this, right? But the first thing I want to say is essential amino acid in, or essential fatty acid intake, there is, you, it depends on who you ask, um, the essential, or essential fatty acids are defined. However, like there's a omega-3 and there's omega-6 uh, essential fatty acids. However, like I actually don't even focus on that because what I focus on when I'm talking about essential fatty acids is effectively the well uh if i could speak epa and dha and they're the ones that i focus on because the other essential fatty acids are pretty easy especially omega-6 and pretty easy to get in the diet and if you eat epa dha that covers what you're actually trying to achieve and they are potentially the, the downstream effectors or yeah metabolites even that are actually required right and and Again, specific numbers for that, 
pretty hard to come by. And also it is variable within the population because you might have a need for a higher intake because you have a higher intake of, I don't know, the omega-6s, right? And so there is a balance, there is a, a relative thing, but as a general catch-all rule, I like three to five grams of uh, EPA, DHA. Again, you can mix them either way. Probably you can focus more on EPA if I'm remembering correctly, because that can actually be converted to DHA. Um, but either way, I just like a, a nice mix of the two of those. Um, and you need roughly three to five grams of those per day, right? But fatty acids can be stored. So you can also look at this on a, <clears throat> a longer term basis, a more weekly and even a monthly basis, right? And just to kind of put that in perspective, if you eat like fatty fish twice per week, you know, you probably have yourself covered, right? If you eat fish oils or eat, if you take fish oils uh, every day, you know, uh, you probably have yourself covered as well. However, I would just look at the actual nutritional breakdown of those fish oils because it can be somewhat deceptive because you think you take oh i took five fish oil capsules that has me covered but you might actually look at those capsules and they might have only like 100 milligrams or something of epa or 150 of dha and as a result you know you take your five and you're only on whatever that is a gram or something of a combined epa dha you know which is not the three to five grams that we want to have you know even though you are taking these five fish oil capsules right just as an aside you know um so keeping that in mind and then keeping in mind that there's that is the actual requirements for fatty acids you could actually set your fatty acids after that if you got that you could set them at zero you know like uh, uh, not zero we'll say five grams you, you set them at five grams and you only get the essential fatty acids right you could could do that right like your body can make fatty acids it can't make those fatty acids but everything else it can make right um however that's not generally a recipe for a successful diet and what i would generally recommend people do is set their fat intake somewhere in the range of 0 0.6 to one gram per kilo of body weight right you can go higher you can go lower however that is a very good rough starting approximation of what we need right and that allows you to then start further refining from that point like i have clients that are on like 1.5 grams of fat per kilo right because it fits their their dieting preferences and it fits their overall goals which is generally you know weight gain because that it fat is quite calorie dense, you know? And while we do want to obviously prioritize carbohydrates because they are probably a better method of gaining the weight that we want to gain, um, there is a point where you, know, you just can't shovel more carbohydrates in. You just can't stick them. You're just like, oh, look, this is, I just don't want to eat these. And hunger is becoming an issue where, you know, you're too full and, you know, having some fats in the diet allows you to bump the calories up a little bit more easily uh, potentially. You know, so there are instances, and again, there are instances at the bottom end where potentially, you know, you want 0 0.5, you want 0 0.4. Maybe you are someone that's dieting for a long time and you just want to get very, very lean. And this is, allows you to get leaner because this is the calorie manipulation that you need to make to, you know, drop the calories, you know, overall, you know, does that make sense, Gary? Yeah, absolutely. And then further refining that, we could go into the, the kind of fatty acid profile in terms of what we want from those fats. And 
there's a lot to this. We also want to cover it in a, a future episode more specifically. However, what I would just recommend for that is firstly, monounsaturates are probably your best bet overall uh, in terms of you know being relatively inert and not causing issues either side of this. Now they're not they don't have many pros to them. They don't have many cons to them. They're, they're relatively inert, right? But then I would also refine that and say that I would probably recommend having less than 10% of my fat in, or less than 10% of my total calorie intake as saturated fats, right? And it doesn't mean you have to have 10%, but I would definitely try to limit it below the 10% of total calories, you know? So I'm talking about calories there. So you do have to do your calories and go to 10%. So you could be at 3000 calories overall, you do 10% of that, and that's 300 calories, and then divide that by nine. And that'll give you how many grams of fat you should eat. I literally just quick maths, I think that's 50 could be completely off. That's not even 50. That's actually just not 50. Um, <laughs> but anyway, look, you can do your maths, uh, you figure out whatever is left 300 divided by nine, see you later. And that, that's how many grams you want to limit your saturated fat intake, right? Then on top of that, like again, you can eat 5%, you can eat 3%. I just would probably recommend below 10%. 10 to 15% is probably a, a better range, but just 10% is probably the, the, the one that we know more about. You, know, you can probably get away with 15, especially if you're doing other things, but 10% is probably a, a good place to be at, right? Then on top of that, I recommend, depending on the population, 10 to 30% of their fat intake as polyunsaturates because polyunsaturates do have a lot of pros to them. The only thing I would say with them is I would not prioritize cooking with them. You know, I would just prioritize eating them because they can oxidize and that's potentially an issue downstream. However, again, the magnitude of that issue is debatable and you know, you have to take into account the overall diet and et cetera. Right. But I would be fairly confident if you limited your saturated fat to below 10%, focus majority of your fat intake on monounsaturated and then got at least 10% of your diet from polyunsaturates, I'd be pretty confident that you had a good fatty acid profile and you had, if you had your intake in the right place, you would be in a good place with both body composition and health down the line. Would you agree with that, Gary? Yes, sir. Yeah, like... I mean... The like the ranges that we recommend, like that, that kind of ties in with this part of the discussion. Because if you get to the point where you're going up to that 1.5 and above range in terms of grams per kilo with your your fat targets, then like the mo most of the time, practically, people end up going way above that target of uh, the kind of saturated fat recommendation that you gave. So like it's very easy if you eat in the way that a lot of you know people involved in fitness do. Um, and you drive your fat intake up, it's very easy to start getting in, you know, 15, 20, 25% easily of your calories um, from saturated fat because, like, they tend to be the foods that are, you know, quite palatable and it's very easy to add a lot of butter to things, um, so a lot of coconut oil to things. It's a little bit different, but, but yeah, you know, it's very easy to start accumulating a lot of saturated fat in the diet. So that's one of the reasons that we tend not to recommend going too high with, with, with fat intake um, because it's like, all right, there's not much of a benefit here. It's kind of just like last resort in terms of driving 
um, driving calories up and we could get benefits um, elsewhere because like it's not just a case of like the, your risk of atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease um, like when, it, when you're looking at fat composition in general um, what you see is that like higher levels of saturated fat as you go up they tend to be associated with lower levels of insulin sensitivity as well and if we're trying to optimize body composition like we're probably not going to try and just overfeed you on saturated fat and generally although there's not that much research on it if you were to hedge your bets in terms of like what's going to give you a better body composition outcomes like studies that, that that have replaced saturated fats with polyunsaturated fats or compared them you tend to see better outcomes in actual muscle gain um which is interesting but like i wouldn't be like oh go on an all poofa diet for gains <laughs> and then the other side of things on the the bottom the bottom end of the spectrum with the range is that like you do have like fat soluble vitamins as well that you do need to be able to absorb and they are absorbed better when you do have fat with your meals so although paddy's like giving you like the like theoretically you could be like, Oh, I'm just going to eat five grams of fat per day. Like having a bit more than that and having it in like a couple of your meals does help with the absorption of those too. Um, so like they could be a concern for, for some people, um, especially, you know, here in Ireland where we don't get that much vitamin D all year round. Um, and yeah, there could be some other things, you know, ADEK, you might have some deficiencies in some of those yourself, depending on your, your individual diet. And, and as you said, uh, your genetic makeup, your own physiology, et cetera. Uh, but yeah, they would be the main caveats, I guess, to the overall range. And that's why most of the time, me personally and my recommendations for my clients end up in that kind of 0.6 to one gram per kilo range. Yeah. yeah. And again, like we can go into all the, the micronutrient stuff and potentially even some yeah, like you could ask, esoteric, you get esoteric specific, yeah, like some very esoteric stuff. But ultimately, if you just stay within the range of 0.6 and one, uh, you're pretty good to go uh, as long as you make some, you know, smart food selection choices. Like you're not just filling that with, I don't know, like I, we didn't touch on it there, but like trans fatty acids, like we just want to avoid yeah. them at zero if possible. And um, you know, and again, this is one of those things you see like IFYM people do and they're like, they're literally eating like cookies and like baked goods and, you know, uh, fried foods and whatever else. And it's like, okay, well like, yeah, I know you're going to have good body composition, but I've literally seen people absolutely shredded, peeled and have the worst lipid profiles that you would like, you'd actually be like, what the fuck? Like, do you smoke 20 a day and just chug like saturated fat? You know, like there's there, there is a dichotomy there, a, a disconnect, you know, so you still do have to eat the right types of food. And this goes back to the, the start of this whole discussion when we were talking about food quality and food quantity, you know, it's like they it both matter, right? So once you've got those two, well, those three things, calories, protein, and fats sorted, right? The next thing we go on to is carbohydrates, right? And effectively, we have no physiological need for carbohydrates, right? And that kind of well, we do actually have a physiological need for carbohydrates, but we can make them ourselves, right? You can make them from other things like the glycerol backbone of, you know, of, uh, a triglyceride, right? And um, you can make them from protein, right? So you could eat a, a somewhat ketogenic diet, and this kind of fucks people's heads up when they're like, I only eat, eat protein and, key, and fats, and they're like, oh, I literally haven't even looked at a carb. But it's like, well, your body is still making the carbs that it needs, right? So even though you're not eating them, your body's making right so it's kind of irrelevant right um so there are no needs and what i mean by that is there's no need to eat carbohydrates because your body will make what it needs right once it has yeah like it, unless you have zero percent body fat it, it'll make what it needs you know it will break down 
like unless you have yeah even at that you have muscle stores so it'll just break down those proteins and those amino acids and use those so yeah it's just not a good time if you just have no carbs and even if you have zero percent body fat and very little muscle you're just going to have less muscle and less body fat you know um so that's not a good time to have very little carbs however setting carbs it's fairly easy once you set your calories and your protein and your fats i just set carbs as whatever the fuck is else is left right so uh, say you set those other two and now you've 1500 calories left just divide that by four and that's your carb number right and it's as simple as that there's no need to you know do any oh do i need to do like three grams per kg or anything like that you know if you set the other two two things correctly carbs fall into place in a natural enough position and while there are potentially uh, recommendations for certain populations that would be beneficial you know if we're saying you're an endurance athlete you know you want to have more carbohydrates potentially that's solved by virtue of having higher calories anyway you know if you have higher calorie demands and you've set your protein correctly and you've set your you know fats in that 0.6 to 1 you know you're just going to have more calories left over and as a result you're going to have more carbohydrates to use for that activity you know so your carbohydrate intake is a function of your calorie intake once we take into account your protein and your fat intake so we don't really need to take or discuss this too much more because it's effectively just whatever calories are left you know um would you agree do you have anything else to add to that yeah, no, like I think we'll get into more detail in, in other other podcast episodes. Like, but you know, people do think of carbohydrates sometimes as being like, oh, they're purely fuel, purely supplemental. You don't really need them, so it's it's only for your exercise. But like, that really does reduce like or take things away from the actual food components, and and look, you just look at everything as if it's just glucose. And obviously, like, there's a lot of other beneficial things like like fiber and everything that we'll be touching on a lot, different types of fiber and different nutrients that can only be found in certain plant foods and bioactive compounds that aren't necessarily nutrients or compulsory to have in the diet, but are still helpful for um, health and longevity. And like, that's, that's really the key point here is that when you listen to like low carbohydrate diet and ketogenic diet advocates say things like, oh, it's not essential to have carbohydrates in the diet. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. But like, we're not just trying to cover our essential bases here. Like we're trying to, to thrive. We're trying to be, you know, healthy people um, who are high functioning, who live long lives in, in the absence of disease ruining that life. And like, it's not just about what's essential. It's about what actually adds quality of life and reduces anything that could compromise that. You're dead right, Kerry. Um, and the next thing we want to touch on is fiber because it is actually a macronutrient, even though people just ignore it right and technically there's loads of things that could be considered a macronutrient water alcohol and even some of the minerals uh, that we eat them in macro amounts so they could be considered macronutrients however it just completely dilutes the the whole conversation so we're just going to stick to the the general standard five to six uh, macronutrients and with the next one after carbohydrates being fiber right and this is another one because it is effectively as I'm doing fiber articles at the moment on the site and I'm really trying to impress on people that you should view fiber as undigestible carbohydrates rather than viewing fiber as plant 
carbohydrates. It all makes sense, right? Because that's what people do. And it's a very visual uh, method. It's a very vi or a vi visual, you know, idea where it's like, oh, this is just kind of the, the fibrous parts of plants. However, if you view it like that, you do lose out on a lot of the nuance that goes into carbohydrate or into fiber because you know if that's the case then how is there fiber in like breast milk you know like there's 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 so many places where there are fiber in a, a human diet that if you only view it as plants you actually miss the the whole conversation and this does have implications to certain issues down the line, especially with stuff like say sugar alcohols, which are effectively treated like fiber in the body. And you might be like, all right, well I eat no plants, but yeah, you, you chew through fucking 20 packs of chewing gum a day and you're literally swallowing fucking 30 grams of sugar alcohols per day. It's like, that's effectively being treated as, you know, fiber, right? So you need to view fiber as undigestible by humans, uh, carbohydrates, right? Um, your gut, bacteria potentially does digest some of these fibers and as a result you get gas but also some potentially beneficial byproducts such as butyrate um so that is where fiber is at but as it is a function of carbs there is no physiological need for fiber right and that's again like Gary said like that's yes okay that's cool you know that's that's you know if we look at it from a uh an overview point of view. It's like, yeah, like there's no need for these. However, fiber is what is feeding your gut bacteria, you know? So they are beneficial. They do have a role. They do, you know, potentially keep out pathogenic things uh, from entering your body, you know, or overtaking your body. Um, so we do want to feed them and we do want to have a beneficial population rather than, you know, potentially pathogenic population, right? So the type of fiber we do, eat matters and the quantity of fiber we do eat matters right now i'd love to as i was saying in the articles i'd love to have this very specific number and um, and there are institutions there are whatever like give out numbers of you know between depending on your gender age between 21 and 30 38 i think uh grams of fiber per day however i don't like using those as they're very static numbers and they don't take into account that the majority of people are going to be eating different calorie amounts throughout their life especially in the population we're talking to, which is, you know, people looking to improve their health, their fitness, body composition, all that stuff. And so potentially you might go through periods of time where you're eating fewer calories and then also periods of time where you're eating more calories. So I like to reference the fiber intake back to calories because that at least gets rid of some of the issues or some of the potential issues with just having a static number, right? And the number I choose for that is generally somewhere in the range of 10 to 15 grams of fiber per thousand calories, right? So if you eat 2000 calories per day, you're at somewhere in the range of 20 to 30 grams of fiber per day, you know? Now, again, as I said, there is no physiological need for these. So you could do less. You could also do more, right? Um, and there are potentially situations where less or more would be warranted. For example, if you do have some gut issues, you know, less maybe the thing that you need to focus on for a period of time where you get a control of those good issues, or, you know, you might be in a population that would benefit from a higher fiber intake, such as individuals with PCOS, for example. Right. And so there are potential ways to go around this and ways to structure your fiber intake 
but as a good starting point because I thought this episode is 10 to 15 grams is the starting point that I generally use, right? And I use fiber for both the fact, or I use people tracking fiber for both the fact that, you know, we need to have a handle on where our fiber intake actually is, but I also use it as a proxy to ensure that people are eating the right types of food, right? Because naturally, if you focus on getting the fiber recommendations, you have to do stuff like eat vegetables. You have to do stuff like eat, you know, quote unquote, whole food sources of carbohydrates, you know, otherwise you're just going to have to supplement somehow to get those fiber goals, you know, and again, you can use stuff like a Protein bars these days generally do have, you know, a fiber component. They do that for two reasons. First of all, they can then say, oh, well, we have net three carbs from this when really the bar has like 25 grams of carbs. It's just that 20 of them or 26 of them, whatever the fuck, are like uh, fiber. But it's just sugar alcohols, right? And obviously then it also then changes the consistency of the bar. So that's why they put them in, right? And so... You could do that, but generally I recommend people not doing that or at least limiting their protein bar intake to whenever it's needed, you know? And again, this goes into people who really focus on protein bars in their diet. Now they can be getting like 200 grams of fiber easy per day, you know, which is, is probably not beneficial and probably comes with its own negatives, right? So there probably is a higher end range to fiber intake where, you know, it's actually an issue, but it's it's hard to tell exactly where that is because, you know, you will effectively be feeding this good population that you have and, you know, they will be able to somewhat upregulate um, populations of bacteria that will then be able to digest the types of fiber that you eat, you know, um, and that they'll both be able to upregulate the number of the population, like how many there of those exact bacteria that there are, and potentially then also upregulate, you know, certain processes with those bacterial populations in terms of they might have a, a greater ability to digest those fibers, you know, or the, the amount of fiber that you are eating. So the population itself can change, you know. Um, so you potentially do have to have this also explains why people will you know change their fiber intake and the first few days they get like really gassy they you know maybe have like a bit of bloating maybe a bit of cramping and then it kind of goes away even though their fiber intake has changed has changed and stayed higher you know it's like you have to have this settling in period for your gut bacteria to change to you know get to the place where they need to be to be able to digest this level of fiber right that is something that you should be aware of if you are going from zero or never having tracked this fiber uh and then you start tracking it and you're like oh okay well i was only on five grams per day i'm gonna bump it up you might experience some gastrointestinal upset but that will subside as your gut bacteria get to the place they need to be to actually be able to effectively digest that you know however there are populations that have potentially quote-unquote bad bacteria and um, that will lead them to not being able to handle the fiber that they are taking. And again, as a result, they may have to do a period of time of lower fiber intake, or they might have to focus on a certain type of fiber intake. One of the frequent diets recommended for this stuff is a low FODMAP diet. Um, so that is something, again, I'm going to be covering in uh, an article, which will hopefully be out this week um but yeah so that is something that you should be aware of the type of fiber you eat matters as well as the quantity 
Right, do you have anything to add to that, Gary? No, yes, can't even hear you. Right, rather than having potentially complete silence uh, on the podcast, because uh, Gary's internet seems to have him frozen, uh, we're just going to move on to the next section, which is meal timing, and then just actually wrap this up, right? So with the meal timing, you will see this a lot, uh, that people have to focus on a certain meal distribution, and that is the be-all and end-all to their diet. However, meal timing... Um, I didn't really somewhat irrelevant because we like th there is some relevance to it and we do need to focus on it to a an extent however we don't need to completely change our recommendations to then distribute our meals uh, in a way that would potentially lead us off track with our calories and macronutrients however we do need to have some eye to meal timing especially considering protein or sorry concerning protein because we do want to get a somewhat even spread of protein throughout the day in three to four servings of protein and just so we can get that muscle protein synthesis activated if you want to think of it like that three to four times per day with a general spread of that kind of two to four hours in between each feeding right and um, so we do want to focus on protein timing to some extent, you know, and this is because we can't effectively store protein. Well, we can, there, there, research is coming out now that, you know, there are potential or the body has a potential to store some nitrogen, some protein in around the actual internal organs for a while. How long, how much, I don't know. I'm not fully up to date on that research. I have read some of it, but it is something that I do want to you know, read a little bit more on. And unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be a huge amount, a huge body of research on that for me to actually read, but it does appear to be the case. However, we still can't store protein long-term apart from in our muscles. So we do want to get muscle protein synthesis activated again, three to four times per day, because that again is going to allow us to effectively store that protein that we eat over a longer period of time, right? So we do want to focus on timing our meals so that we do get three to four protein servings per day of roughly, we'll say 30 grams each per meal, you know? And that's, again, somewhat of a proxy so that we do get enough of the essential amino acids and the amino acids in general. And again, we could say if we wanna really, you know, maximize that muscle protein synthesis, we want to focus on sources of that protein that give us roughly kind of three to five grams of leucine, especially so that that is kind of a, a trigger for that muscle protein synthesis, right? And again, three to four times per day, spread that out two to four hours between each, each meal, right? And on top of that, we also want to distribute our meals in a way that minimizes or potentially maximizes hunger, you know, and satiety, right? And Again, I say potentially you know, minimizes and maximizes because again, calories and goals are going to be different. You might need to minimize hunger because you are on a you know, diet where you are trying to actively lose weight, body fat, whatever, and you know, hunger is likely to be higher because you have fewer calories, you know, you're eating fewer calories, right? Um, 
So you might want to minimize hunger. And again, there's going to be a distribution of meals and also, you know, a selection of foods. You know, if you eat higher fiber, higher volume foods, you are going to feel a little bit fuller. But there is a, a distribution of meals that for you allows you to feel the right level of hunger so that you can actually stay on track with your goals, you know, so that you're not, you know, constantly crippled and going, oh man, all I can think about is food right? So there is a distribution of food that allows you to not be that food focused and not have that really nagging hunger. You know, if you are dieting, you are on relatively low calories for you, there probably will be some element of hunger involved. However, you can try to spread your meals out in a way that allows you to actually eat the calories you need to do and actually stick to the, ca to the diet that you need to do to get the results, you know? So you can distribute your calories in a way that minimizes hunger. However, if you are actively trying to gain weight, you know, there potentially is an issue with hunger and satiety as well there where, you know, you're not hungry at all. You're just completely satiated and eating meals is a struggle, right? And in that case, you know, you might have to distribute your meals in a way that makes it easier for you to get your calories in, you know? So that hunger is actually present to some extent. And again, there's going to be different strategies for different individuals. Some people like to eat smaller meals where they don't actually ever get very full from those meals. You know, So they might have like six to 10 smaller meals per day and that allows them to keep their hunger in a good place because no one meal is overly satiating. They're not overly filling and they're able to then get the calories in that they need. Some people also like the approach of, you know, having longer time periods between meals so that when they do get to the meal, they have built up some level of hunger. You know, they might have three meals per day where they have the first meal at 6, 6 a.m. in the morning, have the second meal at, you know, 12 or something, and then have the last meal at like eight or something. So they've built up a nice period of time in between each of those meals so that when they come to their next meal, they are actually hungry, you know? So you have to come up with an approach that allows you to hit your calorie goals, hit your macronutrient goals, and timing your meals to respect that is important. So while you will see quite often people saying like, oh, this is just completely not important, meal timing is irrelevant, like, yes, that's right, but it's also not the full story, and we do have to take into account that we can set our diet up in a way that makes it easier to stay on track with what we're actually trying to achieve. Yes, sir. Like I think meal timing is one of those things where like, yep, it is absolutely very much individual. And there are many, many different ways that you could go about it from having very regular meals to literally fasting for prolonged periods of time. Like, you know, you could, you could, you could literally set up your calorie deficit by simply fasting for one to two days per week and eating nothing. Like that's, that's a viable approach for some people. Like it's not something I'm going to say, oh yeah, everyone should do this. But I know people who do it all the time, long term and have great success with it. It obviously totally depends on your lifestyle. Um, and that's one of the things as well that comes into this discussion of, of calories and everything. Like some people are just for whatever reason, you know, they struggle a lot with just managing their appetite, you know, even when they've got all their foods nailed, you know, they've played around with different meal timing strategies, like them getting into a deficit is just really difficult. Sometimes that can be the case in um, smaller individuals, particular smaller, particularly smaller females, because for example, if you're on 
like 1200 calories per day. And people like to pretend that like, that's just like not a thing that like, Oh, if a PT puts you on 1200 calories, they're just starving you. Whereas in some cases that is just a necessary approach because the individual is small and they're not that active. Like if you have someone on 1200 calories a day, like how are you going to put that person on six meals a day? You know, like 200 calories per meal. Like they're never going to be full. You're always just kind of, you know, putting a little bit of food in your mouth and like you're, you're stimulating your appetite, but you're never satisfying it. So there are like differences that go beyond um, just the, the calorie level when you look at, when you compare something like 1200 to 3000 calories, because if you, if you're on 3000 calories, like, yeah, you can go out with friends for a meal and still live a relatively normal life. But if you're on 1200 calories and you want to go out for a meal, like, if you're going for a standard meal that most people would go for when they go for dinner, like if it's two, two, three courses, it's way more than 1200 calories. You're clocking 1500, 2000 calories. So it becomes more difficult socially then. Um, so that's where, you know, meal timing like also comes into to this, to this context. You know, if you wanted to fit in something like a meal out and you're on way lower calories, you might just have to, you know, have some sort of fasting period that allows you to, to get there. Or it might be the case that because your meals are so small at your level of calories that having less meals, but at least they're satiating um, or satisfying, that that's, that that's the best approach for you. Um, so it is, it is very well today. Um, but again, it, it's very much a, an individual thing there as well, because I, I'm quite busy throughout the day. So it suits me to not have to eat for multiple hours as opposed to eating very regularly. Whereas, you know, other people might have breaks very regularly and they find it easier to, to satisfy their, their needs with six meals a day. So, you know, there's definitely no hard and fast rule here, but getting more than three protein feeding feedings per day, probably four, if you really want to get the most out of things is, is a good starting point for most. Yeah. I, I think that, covers everything that we wanted to cover today and um, you don't have anything to add to the overall discussion because again like we are going to do a few other episodes on nutrition in specific situations such as dieting such as gaining such as you know a few other things and um, but you have anything else to add to this conversation no i think like if you if you can take all that on board like you're you're very much like on the path to setting up a good nutrition approach. Like obviously we'll give you the specifics in terms of what we recommend for gaining and losing weight and all that sort of stuff. But I guess just note as well that like the, the, the things that, that limit people with nutrition most of the time, like it's not just, it's not just knowledge. It's not just knowing like, where do I start? How do I set up my nutrition? It's actually being willing to just, right. I'm, I'm actually going to, I'm actually just going to trust this and I'm going to start. And I'm going to troubleshoot along the way because most people like they kind of, they'll set things up, but then they'll be like, Oh, actually maybe I should set it up a different way. Or maybe I'll do this or maybe I'll do that. And that's kind of the curse of knowledge. Sometimes like more knowledge isn't always better. And sometimes when you're getting into nutrition, you could hear a podcast like this, but then you hear another podcast where they're like, Oh, you know, but if you go low carb, then your appetite's better managed. And you know, you can do this and you can do that. And then you hear another podcast and it's more like all oh, low fat approaches are better and you're constantly changing things around. And, and it really just makes for a messy time and you never get to find out, right, what actually works for me. So troubleshoot, change things slowly. And they're all things we'll touch on in, in the upcoming episodes. Yep. That is wonderful. Now, Gary, where can people engage with our services? Where can people find us? And all of that jazz do your greasy salesman pitch. Yeah. So if you're interested in getting more from triage, then the first thing you could do is you could sign up to our weekly newsletter. That's kind of the catch all way that you can just keep up with any content that we're putting out 
an additional additional article that goes out in the newsletter every week as well as recommended resources from around the internet so basically like that's like the one-stop shop for right i want to keep up with these what what these guys are doing what they're putting out what they're finding on the internet that might be useful and that's a solid way to kind of get on the the path to to learning more about training nutrition lifestyle etc um if you want to engage with us you know and see kind of you know maybe you want to get more thoughts from us on things you want to share training clips for us to have a look at or you want our opinion on i don't know an article that you read or something the triage method community on facebook is a good place to get involved with that sort of stuff so you know there's nearly a thousand people in there who are all probably have similar questions similar interests to you um and there's always going to be someone that could uh you know give you an answer or a direction with whatever you're looking for so that's a good thing to get involved with that's the triage method community um of course we'd love if you followed us on all our other social media including youtube so youtube's a little bit different because that's obviously where the videos are hosted and then our other social media instagram facebook twitter that again is just keeping up with the content that we're putting out but the newsletter is really the best place to to access all of that if you're interested in our services then you know as we said at the start of the podcast we do have online coaching spaces available so if you want if you're listening to these podcasts and you know that you're the type of individual who you chop and change your program hop you set up a nutrition approach you you give up or you stop or you you second guess yourself then like spending time working with someone one-on-one can really help you to actually get on the path and like the biggest thing about online coaching like one-to-one that makes it different to just buying an ebook or engaging in group coaching is that it is personal and it is designed to take you from where you are now and giving you strategies that last you for the long term and like that's our ultimate goal so you can get involved with that with myself patty or lee if you're if you're like you know what online coaching too much for me not sure I need it at the moment. We do have group online coaching as well. Um, and that's just basically a step down in terms of like, yeah, you do get your, you do get your, uh, your videos analyzed and all that sort of stuff in the Facebook group. You can ask us questions. We can help you make program tweaks. You've got your exercise library, all that sort of stuff. The only difference is that like, yeah, you're, you don't have like a one-on-one check-in with us every week, but you still do still have the option of engaging in a weekly um, Q&A style video or topical video um that patty's recording at the moment and um, live in the group so if you're having issues then boom they can be addressed there simple um so yeah that's an option and then if you're just like you know what i just want to read some stuff on my own i want to see what i can learn and get myself kind of on the path without the guidance of others then we do have the ebooks and program templates available on site too they're in the store and you know they're quite cheap so if you're just like look i'm a student i don't have this disposable income to be paying for services Grabbing the program templates, grabbing the beginner's guidebook can really put you, you know, in a good place to make some progress for a number of months. And then maybe you consider stepping up the, the intensity of the service um, or asking us, you know, in the group or anywhere where you need to go next. So, yeah, that's everything, I guess. Of course, you could support us by leaving a review um, on the podcast. Um, I would ask that you don't give us like a one-star review just because the audio cuts out sometimes because... <laughs> We're doing our best, man. And it's totally my fault because my internet oh, is terrible here in Cork. So unless we no, can... No, it's actually all, I'm going to say, the government's fault because you know, the government's they fault. basically just treat court like a shithole. Well, it is a shithole, but look, uh, they don't yeah, think... Shocking. Yeah. I was thinking about like potentially um, going into UCC and grabbing a tutorial room on Sunday morning. So that could be a potential option. But again... The internet there is often shit as well, but see, it could be better on a Sunday because there's no students around. So we'll see. 
we'll see if we can upgrade that. Um, but yeah, leave a review on the podcast. Um, or if you're like, yeah, no, I don't leave reviews. That's dumb. Like, let us know like what you'd like to hear more about. There's a questions box below in the description box and you can let us know what topics are coming up. We have a shared document that when people ask us questions, we pop it into the document and that's then the purpose of either a topical podcast like this on the Monday or a Q and a podcast on the Thursday. So we do really do our best to, to get back to everyone's questions. So so yeah, that would be everything for me. Other than that, the only thing I would say is that it is in fact too easy. And I'm not sure if you have anything to el- else to add, Patrick. No, it is literally just too easy.